Hello and welcome. This is Diane Lake, your host, and I'm going to be sharing how you can understand and apply the prophetic through practical terms, practical ways, and practical means that make it relevant to everyday life so that you can prepare the way for the Lord's purposes to manifest in the earth. This is Preparing the Way, the Practical Prophetic. Well, hello guys. Welcome to episode 24 titled, Should Women Function as Pastors, Elders, Overseers in Today's Churches? You'll need to buckle up today because I'm about to take you into a deep dive of 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, in which we are told by Paul that women are not to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. I don't want you to answer the question in the title before listening to the options for possible interpretation that I'm going to give you today. And I am confident that what I'm about to present to you will allow you to answer that question confidently and resoundingly with a yes. I will be tagging a couple articles as well. They're important. The first one is actually the full-length inductive Bible study of 1 Timothy 2, 8-15, and it's by the same title, Should Women Function as Pastors, Elders, Overseers? And a second article called A Great Company of Women. There's a 2013 and a 2016 version of that. You will find those on our website at www.starfireministries.org. And I will also tag them on our show notes at cpnshows.com, the version of the podcast that you find there. So let's just quickly pray, okay? Lord Jesus, I just ask you to make this podcast just such an eye-opening episode that people that have never thought of these things before can come away with new thoughts and new ideas of how to think of this passage. I pray for open minds and open hearts and that you would give me clarity, Father, as I present what's in these verses. I ask this in your name. Amen. All right, why don't we read 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, okay, as we start. It says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Let's also read 13 to 15, because these are kind of tricky as well. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith love and holiness with self-control. All right, those are some interesting verses, right? Now, I want to begin by telling a story. I want to land this. I want to make this practical and relevant to today. Remember, that's part of what our podcast show name is about. So this story has to do with, um, if you know anything about our ministry, we started in about 2008 with the ministry we have currently. Before that, we were pastors in a church, but After 2008, we would just kind of wait on the Lord for an assignment, which churches we should go to and attend for whatever period of time, years or whatever we felt. And at one time we felt we were to attend a church plant in our area. Now the pastor was spirit filled, although I don't think you would know that just from the way the services were conducted necessarily. But we had been there for a while and at some point there was some change in leadership. Someone had moved out or there were some problems with that. So the pastor approached my husband and asked him if he would like to serve as an elder in that church. Well, my husband wanted to talk to me about it, of course. We are very much a team ministry. 
and um, approach things as kind of a, you know, a package deal. I guess you get one of us, you get both of us. And so we discussed it and decided together that if he were to serve as an elder, we would be an elder couple. It would be both of us. So that's what he said to the pastor. Now, I will admit the pastor was a little bit uh, hesitant how to answer this. Maybe just kind of like scratching his head, if you can imagine what I'm saying. He was torn, in other words. Uh, he knew that this passage in 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 says that a woman should not have authority. And yet within his own denomination, his own network and affiliation of church churches that he belonged to, there were women pastors. But he was like, kind of like, I don't know, because not only does a woman not need to be an authority over a man according to scripture, but later in 1 Timothy 3, Paul also talks about an elder being the husband of one wife or a bishop or an overseer. You can kind of uh, use those words interchangeably. So he had mixed emotion, mixed feeling, wasn't quite sure what to think, but ultimately he said no to my husband and to I that we could not serve together as elders since I was a woman. So I find that really interesting. It's like, you know, even pastors and churches sometimes are not quite sure how to think about this. And we need to know this is such an important and relevant issue for us today. I hope you'll agree with that. So as we begin, I want to tell you that there are certain things that we need to know and think about very, uh, very in depth before we take a passage like this on. The first question, of course, is culture. And we need to know some things about that culture at that time when this was written. In particular, regarding women, now this would apply to children also, women were largely regarded and treated as slaves. They were typically uneducated. The social status of women was determined by their fathers or by their husbands. There were a few who might have held important positions or professions, but largely they were not open to women. Women had very limited access to education and social life. They possessed very few legal rights. They mostly occupied themselves with domestic duties or home industries. Now, how is culture transformed then? Because I want you to think about it. This isn't how we view women today, is it? Well, I'm going to present to you the idea that cultural transformation is meant to happen by God's design using an obedient chosen generation in its time. For instance, uh, let's just think about the Old Testament. In that time period, it, it was accepted that a man might have more than one wife, correct? But then later, New Testament revelation came along and showed that that was not really God's heart for that matter. You could look at 1 Timothy 3, 2, and 12, for example, to see that. You know, and polygamy has fallen out of favor over time. There are not that many people that subscribe to that lifestyle anymore. Slavery would be another example. Now we can look back through the filters of culture and time, and we're confident that slavery is not God's will, right? But remember, Scripture does not really directly reveal this. What Scripture does is it sets order within traditions and institutions that were entrenched in a culture at that time. The goal being that all men might come to the knowledge of the truth. And there are many passages that we filter in this way, and we're confident that they were for another time. A few of these might be Ephesians 6, 5-9. 1 Timothy 6, 1, 2, 1 Corinthians 10, 33, and 11, 2 to 16. 
I think the key to true and lasting societal transformation is, as I said, the understanding that it is meant to come through the hands of God's church as it obediently arises in its time. And if not, by that means, then you're going to get chaos or counterfeit change or very short-lived change. That's what will result. So think about it. Imagine Jesus, all right, at his first coming. What if he had overthrown the reigning government, removed the existing religious structures? Because remember, he would just let the Pharisees have it, right? What if he'd overturned that structure? What if he had liberated and elevated women, abolished slavery, all at the same time? Complete chaos would have resulted, right? Jesus did not come to transform and disciple nations. Who did he give that job to? He gave it to the church. Matthew 24, it's our job, right? Instead, he laid the foundation. He left it for us to do. Now, there's many more scriptures I could give you in that. So I'm going to refer you to go to that online article, the longer version for some of that, okay? You can take this on yourself and go even deeper into study. That's a great thing to do. Don't just take my word for it, okay? You search the scriptures. Now, let's look at the subject of taking scripture literally. Now, remember the pastor who, you know, he scratched his head, but ultimately he told my husband and I, uh, we can't serve as an elder couple because I have to take scripture literally. It says that a woman can't be an authority, okay? Remember? So how do we know when to take scripture literally and when not to? Well, let me say this. Taking scripture literally is a very good thing. We should do that whenever we can, as long as you also keep the broader picture in mind. All right, because even in the New Testament, we cannot take every passage literally in every instance, can we? Because if we did, we'd be walking around without hands, feet, or eyes, right? You can look at Matthew 5, 29 and 30 for that or 18 verses 8 and 9. What we want to do is to be careful not to brush off parts of Scripture and dismiss them as not applicable to, applicable to our current day because they don't suit us or we don't want to pay attention to them. Okay, we don't want to do that. But basic hermeneutical rules apply. We've already mentioned we have to see what the rest of the Bible says on a particular subject that a passage is addressing. And we also have to keep in mind that not all scripture is intended for formulating doctrine. That would be universal doctrine. I'm talking about for all church, uh, that all church body at all times. Okay, do you see what I'm saying through all ages? So before we delve into 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 a little deeper, let's take a quick look at 1 Corinthians 14, 34, because this passage also references women being silent. And what it references is a law that says women must be silent. So let me just say there is, in fact, no Old Testament law or scripture that actually says this, that women have to be silent. It is most likely a reference to a Jewish rabbinical tradition because remember, women were treated and regarded much like slaves and uneducated. So that would fo also follow that they were not to speak up because they didn't know anything, right? So we also want to point out that Paul himself acknowledged that women can prophesy. 
That was in 1 Corinthians 11.5. So he didn't intend for them to be silent completely, correct? And we know that Acts 2 says that women can prophesy as well. So I'm not going to spend too much time on that passage. You can look at the articles to go deeper. I just want to point out one other thing, just to touch on it briefly. Translation can be an issue too. Sometimes the translators will remove the feminine association with a word that they're translating. You can find that in Romans 16, 1, 3, and 7 as you compare versions. Uh, so just I want to point that out that we have to acknowledge that there is a human element that adds a layer of complexity to the issue, issue of women's role within the church, regardless of the canonization of scripture. All right. I just want to point that out. All right. Uh, let's take a breath. We're going to dive right into 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. All right. This is the most discussed passage in the pastoral epistles. And I would say the most highly debated as to its relevance today, without question. So we're going to begin by looking at the historical and cultural background. That's important. So some of this is a little bit of review. I've already said that the social status of women was determined by their fathers or by their husbands. Very few held any kind of important position or profession. They were uh, very few legal rights, and they were primarily occupied at home, okay? Um, but I do also want to say, perhaps you didn't know this, but, you know, in that culture, early marriage was the norm. Pregnancy and childbirth were considered a blessing. But here's the deal. Because uh, the birth of children was so greatly desired, if a man had no children after 10 years of marriage, he was actually legally required to divorce his wife and marry another. Wow, right? Both intertestamental and rabbinical literature agree that there was an obligation to educate boys, but it was not extended to girls. Girls did not attend school, by and large, all right? Now let's back up and look at the context of this passage of verses 11 and 12 just a little bit. Back up to verse 9, if you will, with me. And just want to point out that those verses address women as far as modest apparel. They're not to braid their hair, to wear gold or pearls, or have costly clothing. Well, there's actually a very natural progression of thought because it wasn't just that those items... Uh, indicated material extravagance in that culture because we want to keep this in the cultural context right it also indicated sexual infidelity it did we may not have realized that but it did so thus the progression of thought as we move from verse 9 and even all the way through 15 the end of that section and chapter it moves us from a concern for women's adornment as we said in verse 9 and 10 to concern for women's submission and silence in public worship. All right, so you can see that these are like two sides of a coin in the cultural setting of the first century AD. It's all relative, okay? There's a natural progression I'm wanting you to see in that context. All right, another thing we want to look at. We already looked at kind of the historical cultural background of the setting of this passage. Let's look at a word study for a few words, okay? Both verses 11 and 12 use the word silence. Now, we understand what that means. Quietness, silence, okay, not to speak or talk. But these words, the use of this word, must be understood against the backdrop of the situation of these Ephesian women, all right? Some of the women were characterized as 
They were idlers. They were gadding about from house to house. They were gossiping or talking foolishly, if you will. In general, they were being busybodies. Isn't that interesting? You find that in 1 Timothy 5.13. They were being anything but quiet, in other words. Evidently, there was very much a lack of restraint, a problem with the women in, in Ephesus, I'm saying to you. So you have to keep that in the mind, in the mind of the back of the drop of what this is talking about. I think it's unlikely that the use of this word meant that Paul was commanding women to be in total silence because this is not supported by the whole of scripture, right? We could look at Joel 2.28, Acts 2.21.9, 1 Corinthians 11.5.14 and 31. And we have to remember that in the Greek and Middle Eastern culture during that first century, not only did women not have educational opportunities, as I said, it was in fact considered disgraceful for them to learn. So therefore, a call to learn in silence with all submission, as Paul was doing, uh, to be teachable, that just makes sense in that context, I would say, because they hadn't been trained to understand the scriptures. They hadn't even had the opportunity to be. So therefore, they needed to approach the scriptures with reverence and with a submissive attitude. So Paul was calling this, these women to listen and to learn. He was not telling them to shut up and be invisible. Now let's work at, look at the word teach also in verse 12. It's worth noting. It's important. I want to back up as we do this to 1 Timothy 1.3 because there you find a reference to certain men teaching false doctrines. Okay, we're talking about that word teach. But a correct translation of that pronoun men would be people. Certain people were teaching false doctrines. And later in 1 Timothy, it does become evident that women were doing the teaching of these strange doctrines, at least in part. So considering the unhealthy attitudes fostered by the women in Ephesus through the cultic worship practices that involved the temple of Diana, it is very likely that some of these women were claiming to be teachers, most likely mixing the Christian and Jewish teaching that they were getting now with these strange heresies. So Paul was forbidding these domineering women from continuing to teach. He commanded them to be submissive so that they could learn correct doctrine. And this appears to be the context and the correct meaning of the word teach in this passage. The next word I want to look at is authority, also from verse 12. This is the most one, important one. If you don't catch anything else in the podcast, I really want you to pay attention right here. Because the meaning of the Greek word used for authority in this verse is authentine. And it's very interesting. This is a rare word used just this one time. It appears nowhere else in the New Testament. It means to dominate, to to domineer over, to usurp authority. Bible scholars note that authentine has a forceful and extremely negative connotation. It implies a more specific meaning than to just simply have authority over, because as I said, it can be translated like to dominate, to usurp, to take, just, just physically take control. <laughs> it's very aggressive, this word is. That's what I'm trying to communicate. So we have to assume that because this word is used here, women in the Ephesian church were dominating church meetings, 
They were usurping the authority of church leaders. They were proclaiming themselves to be teachers when they had not been properly taught. And Paul was putting a stop to this usurping of authority of the very leaders that he himself had appointed to teach there. So I hope that sheds a new light on the use of that word. I don't think that's something that a lot of people are aware of. And it merely makes a difference when you look at that verse and the use of that word in that light. All right, let's quickly look at the word save in verse 15, because we've talked about that weird kind of Adam and Eve passage. It is a little puzzling, correct? Uh, Remember, it said that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and fell into transgression, but she would be saved in childbearing. Okay, so that word saved, it would seem evident that this cannot mean literal, actual salvation, right? Through God's grace and mercy as we appropriate it by faith. That just isn't supported throughout scripture and not even through the all the Pauline epistles. It's not what he's talking about. It can't mean salvation by works. We know that. And it can't be salvation by procreation. That doesn't make sense at all. Uh, one plausible meaning, I think perhaps the best choice of interpreting this, is that the word in this context is referring to some forms of Gnosticism, which depreciated the male and female distinctions and may have been part of this Ephesian heresy, which is in the backdrop. Remember, we talked about that. There were certain Gnostic groups that forbade childbearing and marriage because they pulled the soul atoms back into the material bodies instead of liberating them into the ultimate source or the spiritual realm. That was kind of what that Gnostic heresy was all about. So therefore, the meaning of Paul's strong reminder in this passage is that the importance of marriage and bearing children was that it would save them from this particular heresy. Does that make sense? I think another possible meaning of the word is that some see it as a reference to Mary bringing the Savior into the world. There was one woman, Eve, who brought sin into the world by being deceived. And therefore, there was one woman, woman, Mary, who brought salvation to the world through the bearing of a child. That's plausible. I think it's probably not the meaning, but it could be. Remember, I want to give you options. You need to think about this for yourself. The next topic we would look at would be grammar studies, but I'm going to skip that for the podcast, and you can look at that in depth yourself on the website version of the article. Let's move to the solution of major interpretive problems. That's what you're going to do when you're looking at a a passage like this. You want to delve into what, what are these interpretive problems? How do I deal with them? The first and the most broad, I think, major interpretive problem is the question, how much of this passage should be viewed in light of the culture of Paul's day? How much of it should be viewed as relevant universally and for today? A second major interpretive problem is the question of how much of this passage should be interpreted within the context of the Ephesian church to which it was written. Remember, they had issues with teaching false doctrines and this whole deal of worship practices involving female priestesses and the Greek fertility goddess of Diana. These women priestesses actually had such blasphemous ideas about sex and spirituality that they sometimes performed rituals in which they pronounced curses on men in an attempt to spiritually emasculate them uh, to declare female superiority. So obviously, this was going to affect these Ephesian women, something to be aware of. 
A third major interpretive problem is determining what Paul meant in saying that women should not have teach should not teach or have authority over a man but be silent. A fourth major interpretive problem is that question of what Paul meant by his statements concerning Adam and Eve and the woman being saved in childbearing. All right, so some of this gets to be a little bit of review, but you see how comprehensive it is. If you're really going to give a passage like this the attention it deserves, you have to do the things that I'm doing here. Look at it in this manner. You can't just accept what's been told to you and take it at face value, okay? So these problems overlap especially in considering Paul's instructions that women are to be silent and to refrain from teaching or have authority. So I see one interpretive option, of course, as relative to the cultural context. So as already discussed, when we look at this passage, especially verses 11 and 12, I believe we have to understand that women in Greek and Middle Eastern culture during the first century did not have educational opportunities. It was even disgraceful for them to learn, as I said. I don't know if you knew this, but Greek philosophers, and this would include Aristotle, actually held the view that women were ignorant, they were unteachable, and they were distracting because of their sexuality. Interesting, right? So as we concluded, you know, I think we need to understand that Paul was not telling these women to shut up and be invisible, but he fully expected them to teach and preach after they had been taught themselves when the process of discipleship was finished. All right. So a second way we can interpret this same phrase relates to the context of the Ephesians church. Again, this is a little bit of review, but we noted that there were cultic religious practices which were causing problems. We noted that the Greek work for authority used in verse 12 has an extremely forceful and negative connotation, and it's used nowhere else in the New Testament. I think we can conclude that Paul's decree was not so much about gender as it was about the fact that there were some who were usurping authority and the fact that they were not trained to teach and were pretending to be experts on Christian doctrine. Now, a third uh, way to look at this, a completely different interpretive approach, which I would call the more traditional or conservative, is to look at this passage and see it as central revelation. Central revelation, that which never changes, and interpret it as Paul saying that women should not teach as pastors or elders or overseers in the church. Instead, women should listen willingly and attentively to the instruction of the elders and those that God has ordained as leaders in the church. This option allows for women to teach in some instances, you know, maybe a women's ministry or a Sunday school, that kind of thing, but it does prevent them from serving in elder leadership or as pastors, as I said. Um, they are to sub submit to those men in leadership over them. Supporters of this would cite for evidence passages such as Genesis 1 to 3, uh, chapters 1 to 3, or perhaps Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. Three, in which they say that God has revealed a design in the home between husband and wife and that there are complementary roles for women and men, women and men in the church, but they're not supposed to be doing the same thing. All right. Now, I think you can figure out by now, but that's not what I believe the evidence of this passage supports. 
There is no way, however, to interpret this particular passage, especially verses 11 and 12, based solely upon the evidence. That's what I'm going to call it. This would be the biblical knowledge, the grammar, the word studies, the historical cultural historical cultural relevance to the passage. I don't think you can do this this kind of study without bringing some form of personal opinion into it. Do you agree? I, I think the subject to some extent is where Christians have to sometimes agree to disagree. But having said that, I do see the overlapping interpretive problems that are presented in this passage as largely involving uh, the cultural lens. In other words, the supporting evidence for the option that I think is the strongest, which we've already given, proves that this is not intended to be applied universally, but we are to view it through the lens of culture of that day and the context of the problem specific to the Ephesian church to which Paul was writing. Now, not only verses 11 and 12, I think, should be viewed this way, but I think 11, uh, thir- excuse me, 13 to 15 are much the same. There's really no way, regardless of scholarly study, to unequivocally determine the meaning of these verses any more than it is verses 11 and 12 without some sort of personal influence, probably from your previous opinions or thinking or upbringing. But I do think the evidence supports my conclusion that the interpretation of these verses is best seen through the lens of the context of culture and particular problems within the Ephesian church. In fact, there was such weird mixing, like I said, of the Christian and Jewish teaching with strange heresies, that even the Adam and Eve story was so completely warped to the point that some were teaching that Eve was created before Adam and that she liberated the world when she listened to the serpent. So, I mean, I really believe that Paul was attempting to put a stop to the spreading of these kinds of fables and the chaos that was threatening the church. All right. So, as I said, this is the most, I would say, hotly debated in all of the pastoral epistles today as to its relevance today. Certainly very charged. And, you know, I think we need to agree to disagree, as I said. But on the other hand... We need to really look at this and make our own correct conclusion the best that we can, which I believe, as I stated, our instructions that women are to remain silent and teachable have really to do with the fact that they hadn't yet been properly educated. Until they were educated and had received instruction, then they could teach others as they've been taught. We have to remember that word, as I said, authentain, is very negative. It means to usurp, to take control. It doesn't just mean to have authority over. It's much more negative connotation than that. So Paul's message in this verses, as I said, was not so much about the gender of those usurping authority, but about the fact that it's not permissible for anyone to teach or pretend to be an expert in Christian doctrine when they have not been properly taught. Okay, so I think we just want to be aware of all these issues. Um, And, you know, we come down to kind of the hermeneutical parts of the deal too, because we, we have to remember it's very good to take scripture literally whenever possible. 
If done with each and every passage, however, remember we would all be walking around without hands, feet, or hands, feet, or eyes. So we cannot do it in every instance. So under the category of hermeneutics, I really believe that this passage in this particular subject, as we have addressed it, is to be looked at in the context of the specific audience to whom it was written and through the lens of culture in that day. We should recognize also that not every passage in Scripture is intended as a doctrinal statement for all churches through the ages, particularly if you're hanging it on one word, remember, used one time. That's something to really give us pause if that's what we're doing, I think. So, Let's wrap it up with here with our title. If we're going to answer that question, wrap it around, come back to it. Can women function and serve as pastors, elders, and overseers in today's churches? Under that category of church leadership, I believe this passage teaches us just to make sure that those who are untaught in the scriptures are not released to teach until they are properly taught themselves. And that no one, regardless of gender, it doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman, should be allowed to dominate or to usurp the third authority of those who have been properly taught and have been sent into positions of leadership within that church. Well, I hope this discussion today has really enlightened and blessed you and given you a lot to think about. And I encourage you to dive deeper into this yourself and to go to the online version of the inductive Bible study paper and look at some of those scriptures and things that I didn't have time to mention. We should not be afraid to tackle a passage like this head on and look at it through the lenses of the cultural and the historical setting, the word studies, the grammar studies. Look at the solutions to the interpretive problems that are there, and so that we can practically and accurately apply them to contemporary situations and not be like confused how we are even going to answer the question of can a woman serve as an elder? We need to know how we feel and why based upon scripture. So bless you today for listening. I hope I haven't fed you too much information. I pray you can digest it and come away confident with how you feel. Thank you for listening today to Preparing the Way, the Practical Prophetic. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to our show on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen. And also please rate and review us because as you give us positive reviews, we can reach more people with our message. Please visit our website, as I mentioned, at www.starfireministries.org and be sure to sign up for our newsletter there. You can also donate there. And you can read our latest articles and keep up to date with us on all of our social media sites. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.